Remember the, the battle that took place here where they, Israel lost the Ark of the Covenant and it traveled to Ashdod and all of the plagues and everything God um, took on the Philistines all by himself with the Ark and all that took place with their Gath. Ekron, finally the people at Ekron said, get that Ark of the Covenant out of here. We've heard what's happened before. And so they're going to move it as we continue the narrative. They're going to send it back to Israel, Beth Shemesh here, Beth Shemesh here, and then eventually Kiriath Jerum. Can everybody kind of get an idea of that from here? There, here is Jerusalem, just to give you an idea of where it's situated. You also hear about Mizpah, which is over here. That's going to feature into this, and then Bethel right above it. Oh, you know what? I've got some people, people's pictures in my way here. All right. Come on. There we go. There you go. Um, here we had where the Ark of the Covenant traveled from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. It will travel to Beth Shemesh in this narrative tonight, eventually to Kiriath Jerem. And also you have Mizpah here, which is going to play centrally in tonight's narrative, Bethel. There's two other places that will be mentioned, Gilgal, which is over this way, and Ramah, which is that will become Samuel's hometown or yeah, where he lived. And this is in between Jerusalem and Mizpah, right around in, in here. It doesn't show it here. So it just gives you an idea of where we're going with this. For everybody who doesn't have, if you have good maps tonight, then that's even better. And you can follow along well. All right. Just going to stop sharing here. Okay. So, 1 Samuel. We are in chapter 6, verse 13. And we've had where, so far, um, when we were talking about this last week, it was the Philistines with the Ark. They realized that um, they were under the judgment of God, that they needed to get rid of it. And so they decided to send it back to um, the Israelites, and specifically um, of Beth Shemeth. And so they're going to do that now. Um, and remember their their scheme here was to send it on a cart with two mama milk cows who had never been yoked before and they were going to keep their calves behind and if those two milk cows would continue on towards israel instead of going back to find their calves with the Ark of the Covenant, then the Philistines would know this was really the power of God at work here. Otherwise, it would just be a huge coincidence, which is remarkable they would think that, considering all that happened. But as we're going to see, the Philistines, they are doing all of this not out of a sincere desire to honor Yahweh, but pragmatically, they're just trying to get from um, out of the shadow of judgment of another foreign god. And we're going to see they're going to be right back at their old wave soon. 
So they send it on. The, the, the cows do take the ark to Israel, to Beth Shemesh. And then we get to verse 13 here. And they of Beth Shemesh were, weeping their, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua, a Beth Shemite, obviously someone that lives in Beth Shemesh, and stood there where there was a great stone. And they clave or they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows a burnt offering unto the Lord. So the Philistine leaders follow the cart. They see that it ends up at this Israelite town where there is a large group of Levites uh, men that know what to do with the Ark of God. This is the right place to send the Ark of the Covenant, especially as we're going to see. Remember, we're going to be reminded of this at the end of this, that Shiloh has, from what we can tell, though the, the scripture doesn't say directly, Shiloh has been destroyed. There's no more worship center at Shiloh. So this town with its Levites that know how to take care, supposedly, of this Ark of the Covenant. It's a great place to send it to. And as the uh, residents of Beth Shemesh see this cart and see the Ark, they're amazed. I think two milk cows bringing this cart that they hadn't made before, and just out of the blue, just kind of down the road meandering is their Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if the Philistine leaders were hiding off in the bushes or, or whatever, but it had to be a remarkable sight. And they're just overjoyed. Our, our Ark of the Covenant is back. And it came into a specific field, Joshua's field. And it stopped by a great stone. And so they just decided this is as good a place to do an offering to the Lord. So they split the wood of the cart. They made an offering. And then they offered the cows that were carrying the, the, the cart. And that seems like the proper thing to do. And verse 15, and the Levites, there we have the idea, the Levites live in the town, took down the ark of the Lord, and remember the box with the strange golden mice and golden tumors. And they probably looked at that and said, this is really strange. But hey, we could probably use the gold for something or other. <laughs> And um, so they found that where within the, the, the figures of gold were, and they put them on the great stone. We'll offer these up to the Lord as well. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. Now, all of this sounds great. We've had a real problem with false worship in the lives of God's people. Now they're back on track. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They're offering a sacrifice. The men... The Levites that know, that are of the priesthood, that know how to do this, um, they're worshiping God here and thanking him for bringing their Ark of the Covenant back. Wonderful. This is great. But everything's back to normal? Unfortunately not. Even in that verse, verse 14, there is something that they disregard that God's law was clear about. Anybody notice? This is a little challenging. Something that they did that they weren't supposed to do. Well, okay, well, that's later on, but I'm talking about in verse 14. They offered cows, that's female cows, as a burnt offering. It's only supposed to be male. What? Is that a bullock? Yeah, exactly. 
only male um, cows or bullocks or a bull. Yeah, not female. That was against God's law. So even though everything seems great, as soon as they get the Ark of the Lord back, they're already making mistakes and errors in their worship again. And it's showing here that God's people still need some more refining on right worship. They're still mistaken. And they would have had access that these are, we can understand if these were normal Israelites, but these are Levites that are supposed to know better. They're supposed to know God's law well. And so we're going to see as God showed his glory and who he was to the enemy and to his people, his own people in battle, he also in this has a sobering warning for the leadership of God's people yet again. And he's going to have to refine them and um, correct them to give him right worship. And it's a very important. So verse 16, let's continue though. But when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned Ekron the same day. Lords, the, the lords here, these are like the mayors of the towns of Philistine. They're like, hey, it happened. We, we took care of it. We got it out of our sight. Obviously, this, the Israelites God is happy with this because they're all happy and they're sacrificing. Let's go. Let's leave. Let's get out of here. They think they've done what they needed to do. And verse 17, and these are the golden tumors, which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto the Lord. It's giving us more details about this. One for Ashdod, one for all these cities, these major cities in Philistia, for Gaza, for Ascalon, for Gath, for Ekron, each made one. Just, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of the fortified cities and of the, it says, the country villages or those that had fortifications, had protections around the city, and those little country towns that didn't have any protection, unwalled villages, all right? Even until the great stone Abel, whereon they set down the Ark of the Covenant. So this stone had a name wherewith they're doing all of this. They're offering up in, in, in this area, and had, it was a stone named Abel. They set the Ark of the Covenant on this stone, which stone remaineth unto this day in the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite. Now, obviously, this was a major event in the history of the of the Jewish people, especially at this time, this made an impact. And that's why there's all these details to remind the people of the very day that the Ark of the Covenant came back to the people of God. This is a huge deal. And yet, the leadership still uh, made errors. They weren't ready for this very solemn, this very, at the same time, very joyful occasion. And so up to verse 18, again, you would think everything's great. Ark's back. But then it almost surprises us, really. Verse 19, if you've never read this before. And he, God, smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into, or another way to translate that might be upon the Ark of the Lord. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Even God smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. That's a lot of people for a small town. Now, there may be some of your translations that reduce that number significantly. <laughs> 50,000 or 70. That's a big difference. Uh, again, we'll talk about that here in just a second. And the people lamented or they mourned because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter or a great blow. 
And this obviously was um, God dealing severely with them because the leadership was still making light of something very serious. They weren't treating this in the way that God had told them to treat the Ark of the Covenant and to treat all of this. They still have so much to learn. And the people are just devastated by this. Well, what actually happened? Well, we have two possibilities here. God had to smite these Levites because they weren't worshiping him in the right way. Well, what had they done? Well, either they looked into the Ark of the Lord, which really for leaders, for worship leaders, for Levites, for priests, you would think even for them, that's a little above and beyond ignorant, right? I mean, everybody knows, right? And I'm not just talking about those of us that have watched modern day movies and things like that about the Ark of the Covenant, but everybody knows you don't look into the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, so everybody knows that. So why would these priests do something so foolish, really? All right, let's just see what's it. Does it still have all of, all of the contain? You know, does it still have Aaron's bud and, uh, and and his rod and the manna and all of this? It's a possibility. Maybe this group of Levites just had been so untrained and had been so um, distant from worship to God that they forgot. I really have a hard time thinking though that these priests would just open up the ark. I mean, it's just the ultimate foolishness. There's another translation here that says upon the ark of the Lord. And it basically has the idea of that they handled it or they gazed upon it on the idea of they handled it disrespectfully or they, and there was an aspect where they were supposed to have the ark covered as well. The ark is not covered here. It's within full view. But what I think is probably the best answer to this is not that these men just immediately, Oh, let's look. I've always wanted to see inside the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. But it was, let's check to see if it's damaged in any way. These Philistines don't understand the importance of this and maybe it got dented and maybe they're kind of checking around, but they're not treating the Ark. And we're going to find out later on, right? With Uzzah, the same thing with David later on. This is, this is the object where God's presence, where he says his presence will be, and it is an incredibly serious thing to handle this in any way. God's people, his leadership, still have a lot to learn about treating his things with care and seriousness. And because of this, many, people, many men die. Now, 50,000 and threescore and 10 men seems like a lot. For a small town. This is one of those things where, where numbers in the Old Testament, if we just tend to think, we, we look at the English and say, well, that, that seems easy enough with, with numbers, 50,000, we can understand that. But when you're talking about ancient Hebrew and ancient language that isn't even spoken anymore, and trying to correlate um, a number that in ancient person living thousands of years ago and their language was trying to communicate, it's hard to get a real specified, a, a real exact equation or equating of what they meant in their original language. Because in the original Hebrew, it wouldn't have said 50,000, all right? It, it gives some sort of Hebrew numeral 
that it's hard to translate specifically into today's English. And that's one of the reasons why we have a lot of trouble with numbers in the Old Testament. Um, and this is a translation issue as well. It makes more sense for me in a lot of ways to think that this should be translated 70. 70 Levites that would have handled the ark in a small town seems much more reasonable. However, this may be, I mean, the, the people of Israel at this point were great in number. Uh, we hear about um, their great numbers, even as they're entering the promised land. There's always the possibility there, there could have been this many people in this town and that the author is trying to communicate that God's people were more culpable for not worshiping in the right way. And then he had to deal with them in a more severe way than even their enemies. Their enemies didn't understand right worship about God. And God, remember, he dealt um, and killed many of them with these diseases. God's people should have known better. And maybe this is a reminder of how important it is with this many that died um, about how important we need to take the things of the Lord. Either way, it's a tragedy that the people mourned because God had done this. And then their response in verse 20, and the men of Beth Shemeth said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And that is really the point. That is the question that the leadership should have been asking. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? That is how serious it is to approach the Ark of the Covenant where the very presence of God is. No one without following God's standard in, their, in his rules for this should be entering or going close to the Ark. It, you, it, no one should, it's not just anyone that should be able to walk up and be able to examine it, but they need to be careful with it. So they finally get the message here. This is very serious and we need to be prepared. So what do we do? Who can we send this to? That's where that next town that we showed on our map, Kirjif Jerem, they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjif Jerem saying the Philistines have brought again the Ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. It does seem like there was another smaller group of Levites in this town that they thought, well, maybe this group will have a better idea of how to deal with God's ark than we do. And maybe they were doing what the Philistines did and just saying, just get it out of here and move it on to the next town. Who knows? But we see here again, as we continue God's emphasis on the importance of worshiping him in a right way. And that ought to be impressed upon all of us. And again, as we worship him in our Sunday morning service and personal worship in prayer, in our singing, in um, a right emphasis on God's word, we should be taking these things very seriously because God does. Well, let's move on. Uh, chapter seven. And the men of Kirith Jerem came, they were called and fetched, or they took up the ark of the Lord. And I'm sure they took it much, they were much more careful with it after hearing the stories of what had happened in Beth Shemesh, and brought it unto the house of Abinadab in the hill, and sanctified or consecrated Eliezer his son to keep or to keep charge of the ark of the Lord. So what they decide to do here. 
um, is assign one specific person to the ark, consecrate him, make sure that he's prepared to deal with the ark. They're being much more careful here. And this one man, we don't know much more about him. There's many of the priesthood, many priests that have been named Eliezer. So this is certainly appropriate. This man, Eliezer, will now for this time period be the caretaker of the ark and Kirjef Jerem. And they're going to be very careful about this. In the meantime, a major um, change is happening within the nation as they start to, or as they continue to understand, and God is working and refining in them this whole idea of worshiping him in a right way. The whole nation now is going to be humbled and is going to repent as they see their need to honor and respect their God. So verse 2, and it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjith Jerem, that the time was long or a long time past, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is a good sign. Now we don't, it's hard to know here whether this means 20 years passed and that Israel was lamenting that whole time. And then verse three took place where Samuel confronts all them. I think this is probably saying the ark abode in the city under Eliezer's watch for 20 years. And during that time, these other things happened that we're about to discuss. But that phrase, the house of Israel lamented after God, is a wonderful phrase that shows the end of the era of judges and the beginning of a new, more Yahweh-focused, in their worship, era that would last until the divided kingdoms of Judah and Israel. This is basically the whole nation humbling themselves for a lasting period of time and stating to God that they are ready to repent. When is the last time this happened in the era of Judges? This has never happened in this way, where over a long period of time, I'm talking about in the era of the Judges, where God's people humbled themselves and repented of their sin and longed to serve him in a right way. We've turned the corner here. No longer the era of Judges, where it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. With Samuel's leadership, now we have the people repenting and humbling themselves before God. And this would, in a general sense, again, like I just said, last until the kingdoms were divided, Israel, Judah, and eventually the exile. So a new chapter, a brighter chapter with Samuel as the head. So God is doing this work in the nation of Israel. For the first time, they're desiring and wanting to serve God, to worship him in a right way. And Samuel, verse 3, spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, if you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, basically, if you really desire in your heart to return to the Lord, if this is real, because Samuel knows the fickleness of the hearts of the people. So even though they were seemingly humbled and repentant, he said, if this is real, this is what you'll be willing to do. Two things. Then put away all the strange foreign gods and Ashroth from among you, and prepare or direct your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
get rid of your foreign gods. This was, again, one of the major problems of Israel for so long. And one of the major things that God had to constantly discipline and correct them for in the book of Judges. They would turn, um, they would start worshiping the gods of the enemy nations uh, within their midst. They wouldn't drive them out. They wouldn't defeat them in the land. They would follow after their gods. God would have to bring punishment and then a hero to deliver them constantly. And Samuel says, if you're going to be serious about this, we've got to have no more of this false, wrong worship in in, in the nation of Israel. Get rid of all of that. These Ashtaroth specifically also involved the element it combined worship with intense sensuality. And I think even in the midst of this, there's something to be said today that we can learn from is that God does not want any type of sensuality or immorality involved in in our worship today as well. And we have to be careful of that, that our worship is pure before God. This sort of worship that involves sensuality and different things with their false gods and their false worship, all of that had to be taken care of. And then he says, direct your hearts to the Lord. Make God first. Make, decide that you're going to put him first and serve him only. Focused, wholeheartedly. Make that choice. And he will then deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Because remember, they may have the ark back. But the Philistines have still defeated them. They're still under the thumb of these Philistines, of these enemies. God And so Samuel says, repent. And here's the evidence that, again, a new era. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. They are willing to serve him with a full, focused, devoted heart. And that's exactly where they needed to be. And folks, that's what God wants from us. He wants our worship to be solely on him. Again, making sure that our worship is not um, all about what we like and what we're most comfortable with, but making sure that our worship is pleasing to God and that he is most important to us as we worship. Very important. And we can see that emphasized here. So with that happening then, um, verse 5, and Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah. Remember, I showed you that on the map. This is an important city. And I will pray for you unto the Lord. I will be a mediator for you. And here we have um, Samuel taking on some of the priestly duties here. As we said, judge, priest, prophet, and even some of the kingly duties later on we would see. He was um, a leader that was most like Moses out of all the leader, other leaders they had in the Old Testament. So he's going to do a, a mediatorial prayer for them. And so they gathered together to Mizpah, and this is interesting, and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Here is true repentance. How do I know that? The ceremony that they're talking about, basically. Remember how we've talked about how important water was in Bible times? This is them pouring out water onto the ground and not eating. And all of this shows our getting right with God is more important than even water to us. Is important than even eating is our getting right with God. Now, folks, that's where God's people need to be. 
Not that we have to um, go without water and without food to somehow show God that we're really serious, but that heart attitude was something that Israel had not had in a long time. And so God had not been able to bless them, and God had punished them with the Philistines and their enemies and these things. And so now they're coming around, and we also see they're dramatically getting right with the Lord is the most important thing to them. Their priestly the priestly prayer that Samuel will make will demonstrate their need for God. And at this point, Samuel reaches his full capacity as their leader, and here at Mizpah begins the full leadership of the greatest Jewish figure since Moses. And it says Samuel judged. That shows us that he was the final deliverer, the judge of Israel, the children of Israel in Mizpah. Now, we still have that issue about the Philistines, right? Let's see how God kind of wraps all this up in this new era where God's people are ready, focused to serve him, worship him rightly. When God's people get their worship right and their hearts right before him, he will do amazing things. Look at verse 7. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. Uh Uh-oh, the children of Israel are getting together again. They must be preparing for war again. Didn't they learn their lesson? Let's go, guys. Now, the question really is, Philistines, didn't you learn your lesson? You just got taken out. Thousands of people died because you had the Ark of the Covenant and you thought that it was going to be subject to your whims and God taught them all a lesson. And remember, in, the, in last, last week when we talked about this, it seemed they were getting the message. We need to give God glory. We're under his judgment. But this shows us really... Um, that honoring God, honoring the ark was only a pragmatic response. They have no real appreciation for Israel's God. But Israel, in their time of fear, turns to God rather than all of their tokens and imagery. So they do, again, they're, they're going to do right. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. What do they do when they're afraid? This time they get it right. They're not just going to trot out some of their religious symbols and forget about the importance of serving their God. But this time, the children of Israel said to Samuel, cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, and he will save us out of the hands of the Philistines. They're saying, we need God. Not even the Ark of the Covenant, not all of our ritual. We need Yahweh, our God. Samuel, cry out to us for us. Be our mediator. Talk to him. They're depending on him right where they should be. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. Samuel knew what the right kinds of sacrifice, what God expected from his law. He did it in the right way. And Samuel did cry unto the Lord. And this idea of crying is Samuel is showing his complete dependence upon God for the nation, saying, Lord, we need your help. There's nothing that we can do. That's Folks, that's where we need to be as God's children, dependent upon him, crying out to him, even tonight as we pray. I hope that we're praying from hearts that are crying out to God and saying, God, we want you to move and work because we don't have any ability in ourselves to accomplish these things. We need you. That's the kind of prayer that Samuel is offering up for the nation here. And God is going to hear that for it says the Lord heard him. 
And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. The Philistines are preparing their battle ready soldiers. Israel's preparing their hearts to depend upon God. Who's going to win the day? The Lord just kind of takes over at this point and says, you know what? And it's almost kind of that idea um, after harsh discipline, when you have a child that does something right, you just kind of want to go overboard a little bit more and, and praise them for that. And God says, at this point, you're not even going to have to fight. I've got this. And what does he do? And the Lord thundered with a great thunder or a mighty sound on that day upon the Philistines. And that great KJV word and discomfited them. I feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> it means I, they, they confused. They are confused in terror. And they were smitten, defeated before Israel. There is a common recognition in uh, ancient peoples at this time that there was a spiritual element within every battle against nations. That not just the armies, but the gods fought on behalf of each army. And as the Philistines go forward to meet Israel, all of a sudden this incredible loud noise and thunder remind them again of how powerful the Israel's God is. And it sends them into chaos and confusion and terror. And they run and take off. Um, they're in a state of panic. Probably reminded, you know, this is the same God that just struck down a bunch of our people with uh, disease. And uh, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to be going after them. And they run and the newly consecrated Israelites are now energized and ready to clean up after God's done his work. They're wholly prepared to take advantage of this turn of events. They see these, these Philistines in fear and confusion. And verse 11, the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Beth Car which is a remote village that we don't know where that is today, probably close to Mizpah there. And this was such a great event that it needed to be remembered. And so Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called it the name of Ebenezer, which has the idea, which means hitherto till now hath the Lord helped us. This Ebenezer, this basically he's saying here, the stone of help. This is the stone of help because the Lord has helped us. And it's now a turning point in relations with the Philistine. A nation, God's people that humbled themselves, and the mediating prayer of their leader is more effective against the enemy than even Samson was able to be. Remember back with the pillars and all of that? A humble people and a faithful leader is much more effective in dealing with the enemy. And God emaciates the power of the Philistines and this continues throughout most of Samuel's leadership. They are weakened. They're not a threat again until King Saul starts to disobey. But that's another story. They are weakened and they're dealt with in a dramatic way to the point where Israel is also able to expand their territory, take some of the territory back the Philistines took from them. And they have peace with other enemies such as the Amorites. In fact, let's go ahead and read this. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistine, Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. And here it is, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites 
And then we have this comment about Samuel's effective leadership. He judged Israel all the days of his life. And here was his pattern. He went from year to year in circuit. He went to four different places, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged or led Israel in all those places. And then verse 17, he returned to Ramah for there was his house. And there he judged Israel and he built an altar unto the Lord. He made that place and also a worship center. Because this indicates then there's no mention of Shiloh. Shiloh has disappeared. So from what we can tell, it's been destroyed. And these were the places that Samuel would, would minister to Israel for all of his days. And God would use him in a mighty way. You know, there is a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And it says, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Where do you think that came from? This passage. So I've asked Rob real quick before we get into prayer, if he would come up and lead us in that one verse, because it just seems appropriate for us to sing that. And what, what number is number that? Seven. Number seven in the uh, Majesty Hymns. Number seven. Yeah, take your Majesty Hymns, uh, number seven, come thou fount. Num verse number two, here I raise my sign of victory or rock of remembrance. Uh, those things that would fit there. Number seven in our hymnals. Let's stand we'll sing that together. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good measure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the thorn of God, he to rescued me from danger, interposed his precious blood. 